This is Battlecast. Hello and welcome to Battlecast, the show where we talk about the greatest battles in history and drink beer. I'm Luke and I'm joined by my good friend Chris. Chris, I got a note from every woman on earth thanking me for isolating you in the basement tonight. Go ahead and say something to the people. Basement, Luke. This is more like a bunker in the hills of North Georgia. <laughs> he calls it a bunker. People, I assure you, this is a very nice I drove on like five dirt roads, and I feared for my life the entire time I was here. <laughs> There's literally a golf course about half a block away from where oh, I'm sitting. A bunch of hicks with banjos. More like dorks with golf clubs. But that's all right. This week, we're talking about one of my favorite battles in history. We're talking about, of course, Dien Bien Phu. Now, this battle is the culminating battle for the First Indochina War and a classic example of encirclement warfare. Dien Bien Phu, I think I had that last night. It gave me the runs. <laughs> That's right. And this battle also lays the seeds of a future small conflict called the Vietnam War. And with that, let's crack open a few cold ones. Alright, guys. You know, the thing at Battlecast is... We don't want to just be any other beer and talking podcast. We're actually going to drink beer from the battles beer, 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 we're reviewing. Beer, beer, beer. And I got to say, I told Chris, go and find us some beer from Vietnam. And I thought, he can never do it. There's no way it's going to happen. I drove all over North Georgia looking for beer for Vietnam, from Vietnam, and I couldn't find any. The closest I got was beer from China. I care about what we're doing. Chris came through. He found 33 Export beer, and that's produced by Sebeco Brewing Company out of Vietnam. Now, 33 beer is an American lager that pours a clear yellow. It's produced by traditional fermentation methods, and the brewery creates a flavor that satisfies consumers looking for a taste of the Orient. Brewed primarily with rice and a touch of barley, the beers are a wonderful complement to sushi and all Asian dishes. Now, I like that. Brewed primarily with rice. So, yeah, this is not like an elite beer here, Chris. No, no, it's not. This beer is, is comparable. If you like Heineken, you'll like this. Yeah. It's Stella a little bit, although it's a little more sticky sweet than the crisp, clean taste of a Stella Artois. I get the crispness. Um, I do. But uh, overall, it's a serviceable, serviceable beer. You know what this reminds me of? I'm going to give this beer two bullets out of five. To me, this tastes like a Pabst Blue Ribbon with a little malt edge to it. A little malt. Just a typical beer your granddad would drink after mowing the lawn. Yeah, I'd go two out of five. If you could find it and you're just in the mood to taste a different beer, the shitty beer and other culture drinks, <laughs> Literally. Then, yeah, go, then you go find it. If not, you, it's it, it, it was like 12 bucks for a six-pack at the Ugh. place I went. It was $2 for like individual beers, $2, $3. Um, yeah, I just I wouldn't go and search for it. I mean, it's not bad. It's actually okay. But it's just like, you know, this equivalent of um, Bud Light or Lone Star. I'm getting a little bit of Lone Star of all things out of Texas. If, if, if I had to take on one of the former greatest land powers, <laughs> land powers in a battle for my country's independence, I probably wouldn't be fighting for this beer. I would definitely not fight for this beer. And with that, we're going to transition to the next segment. Every day, hundreds of men suffered at Dien Bien Phu. Every day, many died here. The French soon found it impossible to bury their dead, and the sickly, sweet smell of decomposing corpses pervaded the valley. And that's the first time we have 
We have not too much bodies. We can take in parachute and take in, in the earth alone, one by one. But at the end, it was difficult. And uh, sometimes we cannot recognize and take the identification because men who lost their hand and the head and no more the dog stakes. So what can you do? No identification. When you saw the dead people and the wounded ones on the ground and on a very wet ground with rain and it was a horrid view and uh, perhaps uh, for me uh, as for other people around me it was uh, something uh, making think of the hell it was difficult to change the bandage because we have few bandage it was difficult because we have no bed pan enough it was difficult because we have no no sweet things, just little food, not much. And sometimes we have, like I said, we have one ration for, not one man, but nine ration for ten men. We take part smaller, but everybody has something. It was sometimes very hard. In the last days of the, uh, of the struggle, uh, there was a, a big problem of, uh, of flooding. You know, we had uh, uh, water, uh, the, the, uh, the river uh, flooded over and we had mud uh, up to the, to the belt, you know. Uh, so uh, it was very hard to fight in such circumstances, you know. All right, this week we are doing Dien Bien Phu. Now, Dien Bien Phu was fought between France and the guerrilla forces of Vietnam in March of 1954. It spelled the end of the French Empire in Asia and led to the withdrawal of French forces from most colonies except Algeria. Hey, Chris, you want to go ahead and do those battle stats for us? Sure thing, Luke. This battle marks the end of the First Indochina War that cost well over 100,000 French soldiers' lives and somewhere in the neighborhood of 300,000 dead Vietnamese. The war ranged from 1946 to 1954. On the French side, it was, led, it was led by Henri Navarre, and on the Vietnamese side, Vo Win Jep. The French during this battle lost about 10,000 dead, while another 5,000 were captured. Vietnamese dead is estimated around 4,000 with 9,500 wounded, although the French claim they killed 8,000 dead and wounded another 15,000. This is from a starting point of the French having about 20,000 men and the Vietnamese using an army of about 65,000. This war cost the French people about $10 billion, another billion of that coming in direct aid from America, which as we know in about 10 years will get embroiled in the Vietnam conflict. The Vietnamese cost is unknown, but I imagine it cost the Chinese a pretty penny. Luke, take it away with the battle setting. All right, guys. Well, the Dien Bien Phu Valley is in northwest Vietnam and dominates supply lines linking Laos, Vietnam, and China. In 1946, the Viet Minh began to resist French domination of Southeast Asia. In 1949, Mao Zedong takes over China. 
And of course, China immediately begins to provide modern weapons to the Viet Minh rebels. So we have a huge escalation of the war right here. Hey, Chris, by the way, do you know what Viet Minh means? You'll never guess. No, Luke, I have no idea. Listen to this. The League for the Independence for Vietnam. Now, that's something I want to give my life for. How about you, Chris? Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right, well, in 1952, the Viet Minh Army takes over the valley of Dien Bien Phu. Now, the French commander, Henri Navarre, decides to take the valley back in order to defend Laos from receiving Chinese supplies and stop the Viet Minh infiltration into northern Laos. Navarre believes he can create a fortified airbase in the Dien Bien Phu Valley, cut off the Viet Minh forces that are operating in Laos from their supply base in China, and force them to withdraw. He would then meet the Viet Minh in a decisive battle and crush them once and for all. But in point of fact, Navarre's entire force was cut off in a battle for the decision of the French Empire in Asia would be decided. And of course, the French Empire would never recover. Southeast Asia would never be the same, and tens of thousands of Americans would lose their lives as a consequence, but no one knew that then. Alright guys, well the first thing you need to know is Dien Bien Phu, where the French army has committed over 15,000 men, is a valley. Now I want you to think of a cereal bowl, the kind you eat Lucky Charms in, okay, or the kind that Chris eats dog food in. Now the Love French... Lucky Charms. <laughs> no, I didn't Fantastic. Yeah, great. Now the French are encamped in the middle of the cereal bowl. They are confident in the superiority of their tanks, and they have quite a few tanks, their air power, and their artillery. They are completely and utterly wrong. We heard want... that before. Imagine a line, anyone? Yeah, exactly. I want you to think of a circle. Now, you're probably thinking, what does the circle have to do with this battle? Let me tell you something. The circle has everything to do with this and every battle. In 600 BC, Sun Tzu wrote... Quote, it is the rule in war. If ten times the enemy's strength surround him and crush him. In 216 BC, the Carthaginian general Hannibal crushed the Romans by encircling them. In 1941, Hitler's forces captured and destroyed hundreds of thousands of Soviet troops in Operation Barbosa. How? By encircling pockets of Soviet troops with armor pincers. Zukov returned the favor by using the same tactics when he encircled Stalingrad. What does Russia complain about today regarding NATO and American foreign policy? Encirclement. Everywhere and anywhere, the eternal circle is one key to military victory. Why? Because it's a circle. It's, it's, it's round. It's round. It's no. Round. It's not a triangle. A triangle has sides. I'll tell you why. Because the circle cuts off the enemy's supplies. It cuts off his food, his ammo, his reinforcements. It cuts off his life. And if you don't believe me, ask the South after the Civil War. The circle is a strangling, like wrapping your hands around someone's neck. They slowly choke to death. It was France's turn to learn the lessons of millions of soldiers and hundreds of commanders before them. Never, ever allow your forces to be encircled. What the French in the bottom of Dien, the Dien Bien Phu cereal bowl don't know is that literally an army of 20,000 Vietnamese peasants are carving roads out of the jungle by hand. They're and industrious people. <laughs> they are industrious people. And for the last 50 miles of the supply line, the roads have to be literally carved out of the mountain. I'm serious. By hand, they're carving the roads into the mountain. The Viet Minh began to occupy and strengthen their position in the mountains. And I want you to think about the cereal bowl analogy. The Viet Minh are all around the rim of a bowl in a circle surrounding the French. 
and they bring up three times more artillery guns than the French have available in the valley. They don't fire most of the guns. Now, they do fire a little, but they keep most of them concealed from the French. And they dig them into man-made caves, all by hand, and dugouts along the mountain ridges. Why? Simple. The French have an aircraft advantage, and the Vietnamese want to cover up their artillery so the aircraft cannot take them out. Now, death is about to rain down from the mountains. The French are going to be cut off from supplies. The only reinforcements, their food, their medicine, everything has to come by air, just like the Germans in Stalingrad. Which they had Amazon. <laughs> yeah, they could deliver anything anywhere. They could deliver the with the drones. They could take the drones. Yeah, they yeah. have the drones. Drone army. Not back then they could. Well, Jap probably shoot them out of the air. Jap would figure out. I really believe Jap would figure out a way to do. He's a genius. All right. So listen. Now the French know the Viet men are in the mountains, but they don't know the extent of their strength. They would learn on March thirteenth, nineteen fifty four, the storm of steel would begin. All right, before we get into the battle, I want to talk about the generals who are facing each other. Now, on the French side, we have career military officer Henri Navarre. And for the Vietnamese, we have history teacher General Vo Nguyen Jap. That's right, he was a history teacher. I want you to think about your history teacher in high school. Destroying the French Empire. That's what we have here. Now, I have two quotes from each man that I think summarizes their outlook on the war in Vietnam. From Navarre, listen to this, quote, it struck me immediately in 1953 that there was no possibility of winning the war in Indochina. The situation had deteriorated the previous year. The military situation was very bad. If we had wanted to win the war, France would have had to make a great effort. And the French political situation would absolutely not have allowed this. France was tired of war. End quote. Now, compare that to General Jap. Listen to this. Here we go. Quote. We will take the French by the throat. Strike to win. Strike only when success is certain, or do not strike at all. And when people ask me where I received my military training, I say nowhere. I learned from books and from my own experiences. End quote. Wow. Now, Chris, what's your take on these two guys? What do you think? Well, you know, Navarro sounds like he's the last gasp of that generation of generals that fought in World War One. They were shooting people for cowardice and things like that so he doesn't realize the french when it starts out he's not realizing the french political situation is like nah we're not having any of this dude just go in there and try to defeat him and he's like yeah i'm gonna figure that out on my own but he sucks he's a career military officer he went to all the best schools but he was yes. never never involved in any major war-winning action during world war ii so he has no idea whereas jeff on the other hand he's a strong guy He's the guy you want to run through a wall for. You know, yeah. he's given he's given the fiery halftime speech. He's getting <laughs> his team hyped up. He's ready to throw everybody and everything into the fire. Mao Zedong sending him artillery pieces, tanks, guns. Ho Chi Minh's over there like, yeah, Jap, you go. <laughs> you know, he doesn't want to go home. He doesn't want to go home to the grass hut. He misses Jap. That's actually true. He actually lived in a hut at this time. That's not an exaggeration. He wants to get 65,000 Vietnamese digging roads, carrying artillery pieces up mountains in the middle of the jungle. Jungle, getting malaria and jungle rash and mud butt and wants to rain down hell on these Frenchmen. And Navarro's thinking like, oh, we got this. We got this, man. And probably his troops at that time were probably like, no, no, we don't. We, <laughs> we want to go back to France, eat some croissants, ride a bicycle, have a menage a trois, smoke a cigarette, <laughs> be shitty to American tourists because we're French. That's just what we do now. We're done. 
Well, look, Chris, me and you, well, we played Little League together. And so I just want to get your take. Which one would you want for a coach? Oh, you want Jeff. He's the <laughs> run through the wall. He's the fiery speech. He's, we're going to go get him. We're going to go take the field. He's, you know, he's he's beaten the Soviets at Lake Placid and the 1980 Olympics. That's what this guy is doing. Navarro, he's the jaded coach of the, 1990, or the 2002 Cowboys. <laughs> they haven't won a Super Bowl in a decade. Quincy Carter is their quarterback. <laughs> they're just awful. And they're all like, yeah, we're done. Nah, we're done winning. We're taking the next decade off, dude. That's just it. We're done. All right. Well, Chris, that was awesome. I'm going to go ahead and start the battle opening. Is that cool? Yeah, man. Let's do it. On January 31st, 1954, the French came under direct artillery fire. Their patrols found Viet men in all directions in the mountains surrounding their positions. And the French realize they are surrounded. In response, the French began to set up fortified fire bases on eight hills surrounding their vital airstrip. The only link the French forces have with the outside world now that they are cut off. Now, this is the opening part of the war. How did they, This is before the Vietnamese invaded the hills, correct? The French have fire bases on all the hills? No, this is the... Yeah, yes, they have fire bases on the hills in the middle of the valley. That is correct. So by road, they are, the French are cut off. By road. The only link with the outside world is the airport. And the French are on fortified hills. On fortified hills, and the Vietnamese are up on mountains surrounding the hills. That is correct, valley? with tons of artillery well dug in and hidden. French are fucked. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I want to tell you about the battlefield. Hold up your left hand like you're going to high five someone. All right? Now, the French have set up eight strong points on hills in the valley. Now, if you looked at your left hand, strong point Beatrice would be the tip of your thumb. Strong Point Gabrielle would be on the tip of your middle finger. Strong Point Anne-Marie would be on the tip of your pinky finger. And the main French forces are concentrated in a cluster on your palm that includes the airfield, the command post, and Strong Points. Listen, there's four of them. Dominique, Elaine, Huguette, and Claudine. Now the last Strong Point, and your hand should still be up, is Isabel in the south. Isabel. It is over six miles away from the main French forces and would be located where your elbow is in relation to your palm and your fingers. So that's our battle map. And you can see the four that four of the strongholds, the ones on the fingers and the one on your elbow, are far away from the main French forces on your palm. So you could say the Jap's about to uh, lube up his palm and wrap it around his, uh, you know, and uh, give the French the money shot. You would say that. I don't think I would say that. Anyways, Chap would say that. I don't know, maybe. Now, the battle for DNB and Fu began in earnest on March 13th when Jap unleashed a blistering assault on the stronghold called Beatrice. It began with an artillery pounding of highly effective fire. Now, Beatrice is on the tip of your thumb if you go with my hand analogy. And the French command was disrupted at the very start of the attack when a shell killed Major Paul Pigot, who was the commander of Beatrice Strong Point. First Frenchman to take it in the eye. Yeah, I mean, uh, like right at the beginning, your commander for this Strong Point, this main fortress, one of eight, is killed. Right at the beginning. Gone. He's dead. Stone cold. <sighs> now, there was a sergeant on the hill at the time of this first shelling that was very intense, and his name was Sergeant Kubiak, and he was on Beatrice, and he describes the shelling, quote, A violent artillery barrage rained down on us without stopping, like a hailstorm on a fall evening. 
bunker after bunker, trench after trench. They collapsed, burying men and burying weapons. End quote. I wonder if that time he really knew how screwed they were. (laughs) I think he's getting an idea. And just a few minutes later, the Viet Minh artillery killed Colonel Jules Gosher, the commander of the entire northern section of the valley. So all the fingers, their commander, has just been killed in the first hour of this battle. Lucky bastard got it early. <laughs> yeah, that's, that might be true at the end of this. Then came the infantry assault. General Jap threw an entire, entire division of troops at Beatrice. Now the way Jap attacked the hill shows his personality. This was a man who guarantees victory. If he were a poker player, he would only bet on a sure thing. And Dien Bien Phu was a sure thing. First, Jap built trench networks surrounding Beatrice Hill. You can see him isolating and suffocating the French position step by step. Next, Jap sent sappers to take out any French obstacles before the actual assault began. And on the morning of the battle, he launched that massive artillery strike I just told you about. And immediately after the strike, I mean right when it ends, Jap sends in a tsunami of soldiers to submerge the French. you got to believe that these guys were just getting, the Vietnamese were just getting mowed down by machine gun fire. Even though the French were probably just coming out days from the artillery barrage, they had to have just been getting mowed down from remaining French position. I mean, talking, talking human wave attacks. That's exactly right. And you're right, they were, they suffered extreme losses. At the same time, though, Jap can make those numbers up. Whereas the French cannot. Quantity has a quality all of its own. (laughs) In this battle, for sure. Now the fight raged until midnight on Beatrice Hill. It's impossible for me to convey the Viet Minh's resolve to win this little segment of the battle. I I, I can't convey it to you, but I I wanted to give you just one quote. Consider this Viet Minh squad leader. His name was Fan Din Zhou. Now Fan Din Zhou sacrificed his life to take Beatrice Hill, but in a way that is almost hard for, in my opinion, a Western mind to understand. Listen to this quote from the historian of this battle. Quote, When a French machine gun firing from the bunker endangered the assault wave through its infilating fire, Fan Din Zhou threw his body against the bunker's firing slit. He was torn to shreds by a machine gun burst, but blocked the gun long enough for the assault wave to pass. End quote. That's big ones. What do you think of that, Chris? I mean, could you throw your body against a machine gun? There pit? is nothing I really believe in as much enough to throw myself in front of the machine gun. <laughs> well, I, I mean, there's some I've things never been in the army, but I don't know. But I mean, yeah, that's true. Until you're in that position, I'm not sure you really know. But I mean, like, sir, I would do that for my family. I would sacrifice myself for my children. Oh, well, your children, yeah, you know, I, or, or like. My countrymen's children, and I really loved my country. I could see someone doing that. I mean, if, if it was the last beer ever. <laughs> but you're not going to get it. If it's the last beer ever, you're going to get torn to well, shreds. No, no, I, 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 I pop the cap and drink it while I, <laughs> it's the last act while giving somebody the finger. All right, all right, well, listen. All right, so Beatrice is being assaulted by human waves. Waves like if you were God looking down, ants swarming on a hill. The last message from the French on Beatrice was a request for artillery fire directly on the command post where the radio signal was coming from. That's big That's big balls by the French. Just blow us <laughs> up. <laughs> yeah, that's self-sacrifice. That's a good point. And when the battle for Beatrice was over, 
Only 200 Frenchmen survived the assault. Over 500 were killed. The Viet men lost approximately 1,000 troops. The next day, the French launched a counterattack on Beatrice. It failed completely and utterly. One of the French strongholds was taken. There were seven left. Gee, thanks, Henri. <laughs> yeah. Now, I want to talk to you about this artillery I've been telling you about. The artillery of the Viet men were dug into hundreds of caves and holes. Right until March 13th, the French thought they had artillery superiority when, in fact, they were outnumbered 3 to 1. And throughout the preparations for the battle, the French artillery commander, Colonel Charles Perroth, had told fellow officers the French were superior, superior in numbers and quality of artillery. Not only were the French outnumbered in terms of guns, 3 to 1, the Viet men were so well dug in, Perroth was unable to even direct fire at the Vietnamese positions. That man needed Google. <laughs> Google didn't exist back then. So what are you going to do? It would have helped him out, though. It would have. You're right. Now, after the bom- the bombardment of March 13th and 14th, the initial two days of this battle, Perroth, the commander of all the French artillery, was so distraught, he apologized to his fellow officers, walked into his dugout, and committed suicide with a hand grenade. That's the ultimate taking your ball and going home. <laughs> yeah, that really is. Now, this is an important point. It's hard for civilians to understand. But the pressures of war are so great, and the consequences for your actions are so severe, that it forces a seriousness on life that is hard for me to convey in this podcast. I want you to imagine your decisions leading to the death of not only your men, but your friends. I mean, people you've known for your entire adult life. Like Chris, I've known him since I was a child. You know, You've only sent me to die two to three times. (laughs) That's right. He keeps surviving, damn it. But no, seriously. Happy accident. (laughs) And not only that. But you see your friends suffer and die because of the decisions you made. I mean, imagine the pressure. Imagine the guilt. And if you're sitting in your car or at your desk listening to this podcast, be thankful it wasn't you sitting in that valley that day. Swamp ass. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Well, Chris, no, what do you think of the first day, though? The first day of battle, Beatrice Falls, what do you think? I just you can't imagine human wave attacks. So I mean, and, th- and this is human wave attacks after a professionally dug-in bombardment. And then just a wave of guys are willing to throw themselves on your machine gun nest up until the point when you're left in the command bunker telling your own guys, drop the artillery on us. I, I don't know how many times they, had to, they probably had to retransmit that message to get their team, the French army, to bomb the crap out of the base. Yep. <laughs> it's crazy. All right, so we're on day two of the battle now, March 14th. Now, the Vietnamese renewed their bombardment on the French positions. And on March 14th, the second day of the battle, the airstrip, the vital link to the outside world for these 20,000 Frenchmen and other ethnic minorities, in the valley is cut off. All right? Completely cut off. The only way they could be resupplied now was by parachute. In contrast, the Vietnamese still received supplies on a regular basis by road, And this is an incredible feat in and of itself. It was this 500-mile resupply road that let the Vietnamese win the battle, without a doubt. As historian Bernard Fall writes in his history of Dien Bien Phu, hell in a very small place, and I quote, The battle of Dien Bien Phu was won along the communications lines leading from the Chinese border at Mu Nam Quan to the Red River, and thence via Road 41 to Dien Bien Phu. 
Now, the total length of that trek from the border, with all its detours, substitutions for blown bridges, and bypasses, was over 500 miles. It is difficult for the Western observer to imagine what it means to keep open 500 miles of dense jungle road in the face of the constant threat of aerial bombardment and strafing. It would have been extremely difficult had there been available modern road-building machinery and adequate protection against air attacks, as had been the case when American engineers built the Burma Road during World War II. The road to Dien Bien Phu required nearly 20,000 coolies and tribesmen impressed from the nearby villages who slaved for three months to build the road and to widen its turns to accommodate the artillery pieces and the 800 Russian-built Molotava two-ton trucks which were to, to become the backbone of the conventional supply system, end quote. That's a mouthful. <laughs> that is, that's Especially a long like quote. They, they, they impressed the surrounding villagers. <laughs> literally true. I, 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 yeah, literally true, but yeah, it's kind of... It's kind of prettying up the, hey, what are you doing, growing rice? Yeah, we need you to dig a road over here, buddy. In a mountain. Now, in the mud, in the jungle. Now, listen. How much am I getting paid? No, 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 no. (laughs) Red book, shovel, let's go. (laughs) Now, compare that resolve to the French resolve. I mean, you you heard Navarre's quote earlier. There's no contest. There's no contest. They're coming off World War II. They they just got their teeth kicked in by the Germans for the second time. And, you know, they're they're done. (laughs) Well. Those people don't want to be there. It's it's like the end of the Vietnam War. It's the end of the war in Iraq for America. Those people, are, our soldiers, don't want to be there. They're ready to just be done because they're not. They're not. They're the Frenchmen don't want to conquer. They're done. They want to go into France. You know what? A lot of the French citizens don't, but the French soldiers in this battle showed enormous virtue and enormous strength of oh, will yeah. to fight. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, especially when we make fun of the French. I mean, they're superior soldiers. They had one of the best land armies in the world for well over 150 years. I mean, they're just they're spectacular And I want to troops. go on record as saying the French Foreign Legion are, in their history, are an amazing group of soldiers. Now, during this, the, the was the Foreign Legion involved in this battle? Oh, the Foreign Legion is heavily involved in this battle. They were the elite troops of this battle, along with the paratroopers. Now, now the French Foreign Legion, as far as I know, that's uh, anybody could get in, right? Anyone. And all your past crimes, everything's forgiven. As long Unless as you're a mur- if you're a murderer, you cannot be accepted. Okay, okay. And even that, sometimes. So, wait, wait. I remember reading a quote somewhere. How many Germans were in these legions? At this great? time, the the... The French Foreign Legion was heavily Germanized. It was very, very Germanized. So much so that many of the French Foreign Legion songs that are sung still today are actually German songs that have been translated into French. We're going to hear one at the end of this so broadcast. you got a lot of ex-Wehrmacht officers slugging it out in Vietnam. Uh, unfortunately, we have a lot of SS, Waffen SS oh, yeah. troops but slugging it out in Vietnam. Yeah, Literally sense. true. All right, now... I want to bring us back to March 14th. Now, this is the battle for Strong Point Gabrielle. That's also on the fingers. This battle began with the usual Vietmen artillery bombardment. At the same point in time as the bombardment began, the entire French leadership of Gabrielle was meeting in Gabrielle's command post. Right? We're going to get together, have a little meeting. As all the senior officers of the Strong Point were standing together with their radio personnel and staff, so their communication equipment's with them. An enemy shell with a short delays fuse hit the command post with devastating effect. It blew it blew them to hell and gone? 
Oh, I'm going to tell you. One major's legs were torn off completely. And another officer was riddled with splinters and knocked out by the blast. And two more officers were seriously wounded. At the same time, all the radio sets connecting the command post on Gabrielle with the infantry companies defending the positions and the strong point itself with Dien Bien Phu's command post were knocked out. Gabrielle had become completely and utterly leaderless. That's not good. (laughs) That's not good. We're going to go and say it. All right, so this is Jap. Following the usual pattern, Jap immediately sends in a tidal wave of soldiers to overcome the leaderless troops on Gabrielle. It was a bloodbath. Now, I want to tell you about this. At 6 o'clock in the morning, the Vietnamese achieved a breakthrough. They overran the command post, and now they're at the crest of the hill of the Strong Point Gabrielle, and they begin mopping up operations. By 7.30 in the morning, the Viet Minh were all over the strong point, and the French soldiers, mostly Algerians, began to abandon their positions to the point of leaving exposed men fighting in the forward trenches. So the people in the back are, they're leaving you! They're leaving you to fight alone in the front so they can get away. There's one dude standing there with a rifle just banging away. He doesn't have very good hearing. And he starts looking at It's a nightmare. I mean, it's a nightmare. And most of the men who were left behind by the Algerians were killed. Now, I want to tell you about, we were talking about the Legionnaires earlier. I want to tell you about this one loyal band of Legionnaires who bathed themselves in glory at Hill Gabrielle. Historian Bernard Falls recounts their story. Quote, At a point near the top of Gabrielle, the foreign Legionnaires of the Heavy Mortar Company, whose pieces had been knocked out, were fighting as infantrymen. The surviving mortar officer, Lieutenant Clerge, and his remaining 15 men began to fall back in the direction of 2nd Company with most of their radio sets and equipment. Two legionnaires, Pouche and Zimmerman, opened the way with hand grenades. Clerge attempted to contact Dien Bien Phu for more fire support but found out that his batteries had run low and crawled back on his stomach into his old position with two other legionnaires to pick up spares under the feet of the first enemy assault wave. So the assault wave is going around them, and they are crawling within it to get more weapons. With the northern sector of the third company now a complete shambles, the handful of legionnaires found themselves in an impossible position. Yet the seemingly indefatigable Push and Zimmerman had picked up automatic rifles in an abandoned position and were laying down a withering defensive fire on the communist assault waves. Within a short time, they had beaten back two assaults and the barbed wire ahead of them was covered with enemy bodies. Still, the enemy came on. And just as they were about to be submerged, both men and an Algerian sergeant threw eight hand grenades in quick succession and hacked their way in the direction of Dien Bien Phu's command post. For the rest of the small band, the end had come. At 7.45, an artillery shell knocked out Clergé's last serviceable radio set. At the instant, he and his men could see the tanks and paratroopers of their rescue force coming to save them, emerging from the smoke and monsoon rain. As they began to withdraw, they were engulfed by a volley of hand grenades, followed by hordes of enemy infantry. End quote. Chris? That's some serious heartbreak ridge. Clint Eastwood... I told a rock and roller shit right there. <laughs> hey, I didn't want to laugh. I think those men 
bathe themselves in glory. There's oh, no obviously. Other way. I mean, I mean, fighting to the last. I mean, trying, fighting to the last man is just. They're I, by definition they're not even French, and they're doing this. For yeah, the that's, I mean that's just. Just that we all like to believe, you know, fi- firing the last bullet in the last battle, just mowing down enemies, playing video games for your unlimited ammo. These guys have an ammo supply, and it's running low, and it's just wave after wave of fanatical, yes. fanatical men just running at them. Just you're gonna die. You're, you're gonna, gonna die, and you know it. And you don't lay down, curl into a ball, and just say, "Yeah." Nope, these guys continue to fire, do everything, fighting, clawing. We all like to believe that's going to be us, but. Yeah, these guys actually. It did was. It, it was guys. these guys. Yes, they clawed. They, they, they stacked did up bodies. All right. Well, listen. Now the remnant of the French forces retreated in broad daylight over one mile to a strong point. Anne Marie, the Pinky Finger, and they were mowed down while they were retreating by Viet Minh artillery positions. Over five hundred French Frenchmen were killed, and the Viet Minh lost about a thousand men with around three thousand wounded. On March 17th, the French troops on Strong Point Anne Marie were severely demoralized. Now, this is the stronghold on our pinky finger, if you follow the hand analogy I told you about earlier. Now, the troops were ethnic ties. This is a minority of the Vietnamese population. And for weeks, Jap had inundated them with propaganda. And then came the ultimate propaganda. The Thai troops had watched in horror as Jap's forces massacred French soldiers on Hill's Beatrice and Gabrielle. On the night of March 17th, almost every Thai soldier on Anne-Marie defected. The few remaining French officers were forced to retreat. Anne-Marie and all the finger positions in our hand analogy had fallen to the Viet Minh. Now there were only five strong points left. See, I think at this point, just like a lot of wars, the French the French could just declare victory and leave. <laughs> well, I want you to get a, a feel for what this is like on the ground. We've talked a lot from the God's position or the airplane's position in the sky. I want you to get a feel for what this is like sitting on the ground. And to do that, I'm going to give you a quote from eyewitness and journalist John Perot, a Holocaust survivor, literally Holocaust survivor, who smuggled out a firsthand account of the field of battle after the loss of Anne-Marie. His description is, the only way to put it is horrific. Quote, Airdrop, March 16th. Viet Minh bombardment of the drop zone. Calvacade of soldiers under fire. Our artillery smashed up by Viet Minh. Attempt at embarkation of wounded under fire. Viet Minh artillery destroys them. Tragic. Tragic. There are many wounded. Gloomy atmosphere reminds me of German concentration camps. Catastrophic. Catastrophic. Atmosphere of anxiety. It's terror. Screams. It's crying. The rush of the wounded to the airplane door. Smashing. Haven't seen anything like it since the concentration camps. End quote. Chris, I mean, what can you say? I mean, that dude knows horror. Twice. Well, I mean, he knows horror, and he's already like, this is bad. This is concentration camp level bad. Wow. Yeah. All right, so the Viet Minh immediately set up artillery positions on the three captured hills on the fingers of our positions we've been talking about. And they began to use those positions to shell the remaining French positions with horribly and terribly accurate artillery fire. 
The airstrip, of course, is still shut down completely and utterly, and the French can escape, cannot escape by air anymore, including the wounded. And they can't escape through the mountains either. There's only one way to go, and that's down. The French begin to dig trenches. I mean, I mean, they're, they're, you're getting fired on from your old bases. You can't get a plane out. You can't get a plane in. And now you're just like, yes, I'm going to dig a hole. <laughs> that's all you can do. And there's only five bases left. we got the elbow and the bases in the palm. So that's all we have left. So on March 18th, six days after the start of the battle, the Viet Minh trench system has cut off Strong Point Isabel, the elbow, from the main French forces in the north. This was part of Jap's plan to strangle the French thor- forces through a trench network. In three days of fighting, the French had lost three strongholds and over 1,500 men. If you remember my hand analogy of the battlefield, the fortified hills on the fingers have been cut off. All that are left is the group of positions on the palm of the hand and the lone strong point over six miles away at the elbow, which is being cut off as I'm speaking in the timeline of our battle. The Viet men have lost over 7,000 men dead and wounded. 3,000 French are wounded and trapped inside the valley. Cut off, there is no escape for these French wounded. And then Jet paused. Okay, Chris, when we were talking about this podcast, I said, you know, we need to start something where people can kind of have like an a update on where the battle is. So we're going to pause here, we're going to have a halftime report, and we're going to kind of make sure we understand where everything is in this battle. So go ahead and take it away. That's a fantastic idea, Luke. And even though I prepared for days, literally <laughs> days, pouring over this material, you painstakingly put together, and I'm super knowledgeable about this battle... I still wanted to just go over it, <laughs> add some comments in, just get an idea of where we're at at this point in this in Dien Ben Phu's battle. <laughs> All right, shoot. All right, so so far we've covered the first four days of the battle. Correct. The Vietnamese have overrun three of eight fortifications. That's right. But to be clear to everyone out there, they had the ability from day one to shell all eight of the French's fortifications. That's correct, yep. Yep. All right. So... Knowing that, they're not just overrunning the first three and then everybody else is standing around doing anything. They are bombing all the other bases during the time while the French are staring down their positions getting run over. So yes, the people so, in the other five fortifications are in a constant state of terror. Uh, no, it's very it's light compared because he's... Jap is... If he was a poker player, he only plays a sure thing and he is methodical. While the other positions are getting shelled, that's true... It's very light compared to the rain of death that is raining down on each individual strong point he intends to send a human wave attack at. Now, now the, okay, okay. Now the French general, Henri Navarre, yeah. where is he during all this? Okay, he is in Saigon. He is in Saigon, far, far away. If I'm not sure, that's in South Vietnam, and this is on the border of Laos and North Vietnam in the north? Yeah, uh, yes, that is correct. Saigon is in the south of Vietnam. It's now Ho Chi Minh City. So Henri's in Saigon. He's nowhere near Bien Dinh Phu. That is correct. He is in Saigon. He is nowhere physically near Dien Bien Phu. So when those gentlemen in, in the first and the second base that got ran over and their, equi- their radio equipment died, he had no idea that they were getting run over and dying. No, he had constant updates from the commander on the ground 
who was De Castre. Now, there is a, an officer in charge of the overall position there, but he is not making the decisions. He makes some decisions, but the overall grand strategy is by Henri Navarre in Saigon. Yeah, some grand strategy. Hey, guys, let's let's sit in this valley and die. <laughs> so, But we're three days in. We're up to about March 17th, March 18th, four days in, when this battle started. This battle doesn't end until early mid-May. That's correct, yeah. That's so right. the French, for their part, have 40 more days left of what was described by a Holocaust survivor as Holocaust-level terror, stench, and just utter uh, utter catastrophe awaiting them. That is correct, yep. They're watching their local forces defect to the other side because yes. they've seen overwhelming force. Yes. As we said before, if I'm the French commander on the ground, I'm putting everybody on a plane declaring victory and leaving. <laughs> well, they can't get a plane to land. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> the air the airfield's been cut off. Well, I think at the halftime we're getting we're getting a good good look at where this is going to continue <laughs> to go. All right. So, uh, great halftime report, Chris. Thank you so much for that. And now we're going to start with the battle continues. All right. As I said before, the Viet Minh has sustained terrible casualties, and on March 18th, General Jap is forced to change his tactics. Over the course of two weeks, Jap's men carve over 50 miles of trenches around the French strong points. So they're in the valley now, and they're carving trench after trench, miles. And the French were so unprepared for trench warfare, they asked for manuals to be parachuted in to help them build trench networks. Yeah, that's what I want from my boss. Can you send me a manual as we're getting shot? Well, I think a full picture of what the French situation and their generalship is beginning to take shape here. <laughs> That's true. Now, remember, this is Jap. He doesn't do anything without thinking it through. Accordingly, he cuts off the southernmost French stronghold, Isabel, the elbow. Isabel is over six miles from the main French forces, and their 1,900 men are subject to constant artillery bombardment and infantry assaults. They are completely isolated from the main forces in the middle of the valley, and these men hold out, cut off, against terrible odds for the remainder of the battle. Their supply situation was much worse than the main positions in the palm of the hand because supplies had to actually land on their base itself, a nearly impossible task for a pilot flying at 10,000 feet because anything below that, the Vietnamese control through their artillery and fire. They, they don't, it's, this is 19, or 1952. They don't have... It's 1954, but yeah. Oh, 19, oh, sorry, they have, it's 1954. They don't have electronics, integrated circuits. None they of that. Can, they, can, they can guide things in to somewhere within their base limits. Like, you, you drop something, you're doing best guess of where it ends up. That's correct, especially at 10,000 feet. So their food actually ran out in Isabel on April 20th, and yet they hold on until May 7th when the general French, when the French positions surrendered as a whole. Now, I want you to think of the wounded on the on Isabel's stronghold. There was no way for them to get to the meager medical supplies and doctors at the main camp. They simply had to suffer through to the very end. And when asked years later what it was like to fight at Isabel, a survivor said, quote, It was hell in a very small place, end quote. Okay. So, once again, we're having... The French are getting textbooks flown in of how to fight this battle. <laughs> That's right, true. So we're Literally just, I mean, true. As I said, getting a full picture of their leadership, <laughs> what the people above them are, help 
the soldiers on the ground are trying to figure out how to fight this battle. Whereas Jap, he's stopping, he's rechanging, even though he's winning, he's yeah. changing his tactics constantly. True. And as we covered in halftime report, where Henri was during the battle, which is hundreds of miles away in yeah. South Vietnam, um, how much, how hands on was Jap during? Where was he in the ground with his forces? Let me tell you, Jap. Almost the entire time. Not the entire time, especially at the beginning. But almost the entire time, Jap is hands-on. He's actually in the mountains surrounding Dien Bien Phu. He's observing the French positions. He's ready to strike. Because he knows, in just a few weeks' time, there's going to be a major conference on Indochina in France. And he wants to destroy Dien Bien Phu to have a strong position at the negotiating table for the Vietnamese. So he's there on the ground. He's he's going to win or die. He's there most of the time. And, and I think that's the juxtaposition between... Uh, Henri has no support really from the French government. Even I think I read the French government barely even knows what he's doing. Oh, that's correct. And, and the French government is actually in crisis at this time. And according to the concise history of modern France, the French government at this time is actually, because of the war, they're spending so much on the war, they're having a huge deficit problem. And the French government on the mainland in France is going through cycles of, of um, the government breaking apart and new governments coming in. Yeah. You know, go on. But on the flip side of that, you have Jap who his only leader he's got to answer to is Ho Chi Minh, basically. Correct. Who's helping direct the war, and they want the French gone. They're fighting for their country. So they, 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 they're willing to throw it all in. They're, and, and they're winning. They're so winning. it makes it easy. And he's there in his fort, even, even though you might have impressed villagers who might not want to be there, other people from the surrounding countries that aren't so, aren't so down with the communist vibe, they're there seeing the, they're backing the winner, and he's there constantly almost every day, in the surrounding hills, directing fire, giving them true leadership. That's right. Whereas, and I want I want to let you know, Ho Chi Minh believed in Jap. Ho Chi Minh supported Jap. I mean, this is a guy that can go to a village and say, hey, guess what, all you farmers over here? <laughs> You're road builders now. Get to the mountain. And they have to hop to it. You know what I mean? It's none of this like, uh, we're not sure. We want to do a fiscal report. Well, anyways... Now, the superiority of the Viet Minh artillery cannot be overstressed. French planes in the valley were destroyed by artillery fire when they tried to land. Supplies of gasoline and ammunition were destroyed by effective artillery fire. Counter-battery fire killed whole crews of French field guns. And since there were no train replacements and none could be flown in, these very valuable guns remained silent during the critical stages of the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. Parachutes would fall to open and into open trenches and smash into the trenches like bombs, burying and smashing soldiers in swarms of mud and dirt. Other supplies drifted into enemy territory. And when supplies did land where they were supposed to, they were in packages that weighed over one ton. It was nearly impossible for the French soldiers, to, French soldiers to retrieve them under the heavy shelling from the mountains of the uh, the surrounding mountains. Well, I mean, I, I've bought school boats before. They're very heavy. So when you're dropping <laughs> crates of artillery use manuals <laughs> to, yeah. the, to, the, to, the, to the guy that's used to mucking out latrines, you know, I mean, yeah, they're very heavy. Trouble. They're heavy. You, and the return policy, you buy those boats, 200 bucks. You return them, 30. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Now, meanwhile, Jap's noose around Dien Bien Phu was tightening. 
Men would go out on patrol and just simply never return. Entire sticks of 12 men would parachute into enemy lines, never to be heard from again, dead. The Vietnamese broadcast propaganda, listen to this, in German, Algerian, and Vietnamese to weaken the morale of the half of the French forces who were not ethnically French themselves. Death was an hourly occurrence and it could occur in the most idiosyncratic ways. Consider what happened to one man, Lieutenant Gambier. Gambier was being transported by helicopter out of the valley when the chopper in front of his simply eviscerated. Destroyed by Vitmin gunfire. A shell fragment hit Gambier's chopper and it crashed, of course. The pilot was pulled to safety, but Gambier, who was in the back, was caught in a hellstorm of fire. Why? Because the helicopter was made from magnesium alloy, a highly combustible material. Multiple planes were destroyed daily, and their crews often died before they even hit the ground. The survivors were raked by the ubiquitous guns of the Viet Minh, it was a death storm. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I have no knowledge of this. The French were flying helicopters made out of magnesium? Alloy, yeah. And apparently this stuff just burns like, I don't know. Well, yeah, that's sticks. what they put in tracers and machine guns to see where that. the bullets are firing. It's, it's a... Death chopper! Here you go! I'm not sure. Let me look at that. It's like some kind of derivative of magnesium, isn't it? It's like <laughs> magnesium and phosphorus? I'm not sure, but anyways. On March 24th, the local French commander... Colonel de Castre withdrew into his fortified quarters and rarely reappeared for the duration of the battle. De Castre was no longer leading the battle on the ground. He had withdrawn from his men and even from his staff. Eyewitnesses reported de Castre acted, quote, as if a spring had broken inside him, end quote. And when his subordinates appeared before the French government commission investigating the battle, battle of Dien Bien Phu, in 1955, they described De Castre's role in the battle laconically. Quote, he transmitted our messages to annoy for us. End quote. Basically, they're saying all he did was transmit messages. Leadership on the ground fell to a lieutenant colonel and a paratrooper named Lang Lei. He actually had an, a group of paratroopers around him, and they were called the Paratroop Mafia. A first-class soldier, Lang Lei braved every part of his fortified line to get an eyewitness view of conditions on the ground. If Jap was planning a storm, Lang Lei was planning a dam to contain it. Outsupplied, outnumbered, and outgunned, Lang Lei covered himself in glory. Rain fell continuously, and the troops in the open trenches began a 40-day trial of knee-deep and sometimes chest-deep mud, with wet clothes, monsoon weather, and human waste floating within the water that they waded in hourly and daily. Unimaginable chafing. <laughs> Unimaginable chafing. The water in the trenches was three feet deep, and combat rations were eaten cold. The underground French hospital was filling up so fast its catacombs could no longer be enlarged. Michael McClear, a historian of this battle, describes the scene. Quote, the worst hell now began. The French underground hospital had facilities for only 40 beds. There were only four surgeons for the 12,000 men who had so far survived, most with wounds. The French began digging hospital tunnels, placing the wounded on ledges carved in the clay. In the French medical catacombs, the scene was nightmarish. The hospital had been extended and extended until it reached close to the now disused graveyard. There came a day 
when the wounded found large white worms from the graves crawling amid their bandages. We could see legs with maggots, but the doctor left them on and said, I think it prevents gangrene. Those maggots were moving around on the patient's legs. It was terrible. End quote. Who was that doctor? Like, Navarro's cousin? <laughs> was like his brother-in-law? Yeah, yeah he yeah, was yeah. a good man. He yeah, actually, yeah, those worms? Yeah, gangrene. Yeah, don't worry about that. Yeah, he, well, he, he said that just to ease their mind because he had nothing to get the maggots Well, home. obviously he said that, but it no. still comes off as a little bit. He, he wrote a great book. On his experience in the war, I, I really believe he was a good man. Well, I'm not saying he's not a good man. I'm just saying that quote comes off a little dishy. Well, that's the quote. On March 30th, the Vent men unleashed a wave of artillery and walked it up to the French strong points of Dominique and Elaine. Those are in the palm of our hand. And as the artillery walked up the hills, it was followed by human waves of infantry, one after another, flooding up from the trenches at the bottom of the hills. The Vietnamese trenches were so close to the French lines, they overwhelmed the French defenders before they could even fire their weapons. French paratroopers, elite soldiers, entered the lines to stem the tide of the Vietnam men. They shot their own men who refused to fight. And outnumbered 10 to 1, the paratroopers heroically fought to the very last men, buying invaluable time for the French forces behind them to organize the defense. I'm not saying that cowardice is a great thing, but you know what? If you're getting overwhelmed and some of your guys are retreating, instead of wasting your own bullets like shooting them in the back, maybe you just want to shoot all the guys in front of you just in case that guy, you know, gets his shit together and like 500 feet and says, you know what? I better go back and help shoot. If you're <laughs> shooting your own guys, yeah, a little screwed at that point. Yeah, but I tell you, those those paratroopers held off the human wave assaults long enough for the men in the back to be ready for the assault when it came to them. And it actually saved those positions for a whole month. So yeah, I think except, it was except a, for Captain Shooterman back. I think it was effective. I really hey, Fred, did. why don't you turn around and shoot the enemy? Well, I'm shooting our own guys. Well, that's the thing. If lesson. you believe in something enough to sacrifice yourself, it was worth it. <laughs> if you don't believe in something enough, it wasn't worth it. Right. So on March 31st, the French supply of grenades and 81mm mortar shells were completely exhausted throughout the entire camp. Attrition, Japs' attrition, was working. Do we have any information on their wine supply? They had, I'm glad you brought this up. The French had more wine than they had artillery shells, and they had literally thousands of gallons of wine and wine extract, which you could mix with water. And since we're on this subject... Not my, only, wife would be, my wife would be in paradise in this place. Tropical <laughs> zone, all the wine you could drink. It's all true. They had... Beautiful jungle setting. It was, uh, one historian called it a unique French problem to have that much wine and that little So ammunition. really they were just running back to get wine. What was the baguette supply like? Uh, I don't know. I don't have. I don't have those numbers. But I can tell you in Bernard Falls, uh, history of DNB and Foo, he cites that the numbers <laughs> of the wine was way more than most ammunition. Not all, but most ammunition the French had. That's literally true. All right. So from March 31st to April 5th, Jap unleashes daily assaults on strong points Elaine, Dominique, and Huguette. Now, these series of small battles are known as the Battle for Five Hills. These battles typically went in this way. A small group of heavily outnumbered French defenders would be isolated on a hill by Vietnamese trenches. 
the obligatory massive artillery assault would soften up the position. Immediately afterwards, the Viet men would assault the isolated position with a sea of humanity rising from their trenches. The French soldiers described the humanity that assaulted them as seemingly endless. Pilots reported the Vietnamese attackers were so thick, the valley looked like one giant blanket of green moving up the hills. Of course, the green is the uniforms the Vietnamese are wearing. Well, they also had like palm fronds and crap. That's all true. Over them. Yes, yeah. So they're seeing that like a like a forest moving. The waves of Viet Minh would attack the meager defenders, take almost the entire position they were attacking, only to be driven back by a French relief force, invariably involving M24 tanks. These tanks were often hit by direct bazooka fire three or four times. They would break down, but almost never would be destroyed. They would be repaired by the French, and they were the one aspect of French superiority on the battlefield. Yeah, but it's a jungle battle. Tanks can't possibly... I mean, it, tanks, uh, tanks it, an open field warfare. It is, it is a jungle battle, but on the ground, the French had prepared positions connecting the different strong points, and so the tanks are effective. On oh, the so valley they can, floor, they can move. they're not effective in the mountains. Yeah, obviously. but on the valley floor, the tanks are very effective. How many tanks are we talking about? We're talking about hmm, probably just a few, not a lot. I would say I, I want to go with my gut about ten. Oh, but they're yeah. constantly using them. Repeatedly. Well, they're constantly using them, but you can't. They can't be everywhere. They can't be everywhere, and a lot of them are cut off on Isabel. Yeah. So that right there, and you're talking about an enemy that's use, willing to use wave after wave of human suicide, infantry attacks. No one, two, or three tanks could stand up to that type of assault. Not indefinitely, but they did. Well, they did. For weeks and weeks. And when the French forces counterattacked, they witnessed a freak show of death. Thousands of Viet men and French bodies covered the hills, unburied and baking in the sun. The hills had been raked hundreds of time by, times by artillery shells, and the dead bodies were an abomination of dismemberment, stinking and rotting in the blistering tropical heat. Nothing was left of French positions that 20 hours before had comprised shelters, dugouts, and barbed wire fortified strong points. All that one could see was craters of mud and rotting human flesh. The commander of the French forces, Colonel Langley, describes the macabre scene, quote, The dead were buried when it was possible to do so. From mid-April on, they were just left behind. I mean, what what, what he's describing there is almost World War One like conditions of just constant battle, and there's just no ability to to reset. There's, these armies are in constant contact with each other. There's just no ability to pull your forces back, try to gather something together, and. And, and and hold out on a defense. The Vietnamese are attacking constantly. They are attacking the constantly. Any rest, and they're not giving the French race. But we have to give credit to Colonel Langley, who is the commander on the ground at this point. He always holds back a little reserve, a little a little bit that can counterattack these oh, no, positions. That's the second time this dude has come up, and I mean he's doing he's doing his best a job in a crap situation. I totally agree. He's taking he's taking a big old bite of that crap sandwich and just choking it down like a champ. I would tell you he's a hell of a man. Oh yeah, yeah. Now I want to give you a typical example of the battle for five hills. We can't go through the whole thing, but here is what it was like. This is what typically happened, and this is on Huget Six. Now 
Puget 6 is one little isolated hill on the main strong point of Huget, and it's a little bitty hill. It was held by exactly 90 elite and battle-hardened French paratroopers. Now, these are elite troops. Against these 90 men, Jap threw an entire infantry regiment comprising well over 3,000 men with an attachment of heavy weapons and mortar troops. After an artillery barrage, the Vit men attacked from the west, north, and east. Okay? So the beleaguered paratroopers retreated to the southern ends, the only place they're not getting attacked from. So they're on the southern end of the hill. The French then committed reinforcements as they were available. One company, led by Captain Cladic, sprinted to the battle so fast, the Vietnamese were unable to take aim at them. They actually came so fast that they couldn't even aim their rifles at them. They fought hand-to-hand with the Viet men to negate the Viet's artillery advantage from the hills. By nightfall, the Viet men had taken almost the entire hill. With the arrival of daylight, French artillery pounded the Viet men, and the French Air Force attacked with napalm, catching hundreds, if not thousands, of Viet men in open ground with napalm. Now, napalm is just fire. It's like a liquid gel of fire that attaches to you and won't quit burning. It was a bloodbath of the Vietnamese. And using tanks and a few infantry reinforcements, the French retook the hill. Huget 6 was saved. High-ranking French officer Major Biguet describes the counterattacks. We st- quote, We started shooting, and we fired three or 4,000 shots, and all the cannon of Dien Bien Phu, all 120 mortars, were aimed at that one position. My men got out of the trenches and went to the attack, but the Viet men were also entrenched. Maybe half of them had been killed, but there still remained the other half, and they fought like the great fighters they are. They fought man to man and with daggers, but my own men put up such a fight that after one whole day we had recaptured our objectives. Then my men had to occupy the trenches, but they were digging upon the fallen bodies. The soil was covered with dead bodies, French and Vietnamese. The smell was horrible. End quote. Ah. And this is where we, we come to something like this, where we realize that the Vietnamese numbers of how many guys they lost in this battle have to be completely, have to be depressed in some way. I agree. He, he threw a regiment at these elite troopers, which got bombarded with napalm, artillery True. fire, tanks. They had to have been wiped out. And a regiment is, is, is around one to 2,000 troops. And they probably had to have been they wiped see, they out. They threw 3,000 troops. Yeah. 3,000. Yeah, I'm just saying he threw yeah, 3,000 men. Yeah. you got to figure they were almost completely wiped out in this battle. Or close to it. Enough to where you're making up the human wave attacks from all the other forts they lost. Listen. You're getting into multiple thousands of people. The French estimates had to be closer. I agree. To what actually they lost. I agree. And the Battle of Five Hills is not a Vietnamese victory. It's not. Because of these tactics the French use. Oh yeah, yeah, and um, uh, Colonel uh, Colonel uh, Lang Lay. Lang Lay. I mean, dude's the man, Johnny on the spot. He is Johnny on the spot. He's put in an impossible situation, and he overcame it for weeks. I mean, just plugging. Put. I mean, this this is the guy that's putting his fingers in all the ha- all all the <laughs> all the holes and grows more fingers to put those in the holes too. <laughs> And shoves you with your fingers to, <laughs> to play a hole. It works. It works. And the dude, and the dude that's running this battle, he's in a, he's he's got all the wine and the baguettes back and his pencil thin mustache and his bicycle down in Saigon, saying, "Hey, how's that? How's that Dien Bien Phu thing going?" 
Unfortunately, that's the truth. Now, well, anyways, these tactics were effective. But it's important to point out that without massive reinforcements, the French would not be able to continue counterattacking. The French were getting, on average, 75 reinforcements a day throughout this battle. In this one battle for Hill Huget 6, 200 French soldiers were wounded, and the entire 90-man paratroop force, who I told you about before, defending the hill, were completely wiped out, gone, forever. Elite troops. Jap lost well over 900 men in this battle, but he could replace them, and the French could not. Jap was bleeding the French dry. Yeah, but that, that number, 900, that's got to be a low, that's a low-end number. There's I no mean, way it, it's all an estimate. It's yeah, an it's estimate. all an estimate because you never know. But I'm just saying, if, what the French threw at them in that situation where they're, they had 90 guys on a limited area of effect, and oh yeah, the, the Vietnamese are attacking them from three fronts, and then the French just drop large, you know... Um, quantities of napalm, quantities of artillery, napalm, artillery they, mortars, they had to have mortars. killed a large percentage of these people that were just way back, you know have no concern. I mean, they, do, they probably have individual concern for their well-being. Yeah. The guy standing back there commanding them was like, yeah, go get them. It's only 90 guys. Well, it's funny you should say that because actually after the, because of these kind of battles, the Vietnamese forces, after the Battle of Five Hill, Hills, some of them refused to advance. And incredibly, even though the French are in an impossible position, a few go over to the French side. <laughs> That's literally true. Even though they see how horrible it is, but they're like, we'd rather be with you because you're not that's just... How, that's how like, they, can't, they can't take like gaps like, dude, we have them surrounded. <laughs> and they still go over to the French, incredibly. And he's, like, he's probably like, yeah, yeah, go. See how that works out for you in a few days. Yo, I agree, but still. All right, so here we are. It's April 5th. French forces have lost half of Elaine and the Dominique positions in the Palm. All right, so half of these French strong points are taken, two of them. So that's a net total of four, really, French strong points still held. And for the next month, the French and Viet Minh remained on Elaine and Dominique in a kind of draw a few yards from one another. Now, I've seen pictures of Dominique and Elaine's strong points at this point in the fighting, <clears throat> and it's hard to describe what they look like. I want you to think of a giant pot-marked anthill with pieces of dead bodies, sometimes buried, sometimes in the open, a hand here, half a face decomposing there. And the French entrenching in uniforms, waterlogged and caked in mud and excrement. So, so I mean, basically, if, if you're a Frenchman, you at this point in 1954, you, you have, your father was probably in World War I. And That's true. he fought it, is it the Battle of the Somme? These these are similar conditions between the Germans, where they're just where they're just launching massive artillery attacks at each other, and bodies are being churned up, and you know one it's artillery very attack similar after to trench another. warfare. Yeah. So, yeah. for a Frenchman who's been told stories about World War One and the battles that were fought, this has to be psychologically just demoralizing to them to realize you're in demoralizing this. to me am i even there <laughs> i mean just but just to under just to just to think back to all the stories your dad your grandfather probably told you about oh, yeah. fighting in these battles and you're like i'm in this kind of meat grinder just hell on earth no escape we all gonna die battle <laughs> yeah now on the battlefield the steam rising from the water pools baked in the broiling sun and i want you to imagine men fighting like tigers in these horrible conditions. And in mid-April, hundreds of French legionnaires and paratroopers sang a song as they attacked the Viet Minh, and they embraced death with a song. All right, so going, finding out even further, 
these dudes are not afraid. They are not afraid. They're just, they're, they're like, we're in this with uh, old Saigon, Frenchy Saigon over there. But no, they, you got to think. But they got Lang Lee over here. We got Lang Lee. Lang Lei. Lang Lei. We're going in, baby. We're it's, doing it's, this with a song it's in our the heart. the Legionnaire's ethic. Their country is the Legion. It's not France. Now, on April 5th, General Navarre radios Colonel Lang Lei and asks him if he can maintain the perimeter of his strong points. Lang Lei laconically replies, quote, Mon Colonel, as long as I've got one man left alive, I'm not going to let go of any strong point, end quote. During the Battle of Five Hills, the French lost well over 2,100 men in less than one week. And even though the fate of the men on Dien Bien Phu was sealed, over 3,000 French soldiers volunteered, volunteered to parachute into Dien Bien Phu. They were men like Lieutenant Bassett of the 2nd Foreign Legion who said, quote, I am beginning not to care. I fight the war like a game. I like combat. I like the risk. I like like the same way others enjoy bowling or fishing. I fight for myself. I fight for my legionnaires, for the legion. Do I fight for France? Yes, I believed when I was younger. But the mentality of most of the French is so rotten that I cannot pretend to fight for them. End quote. So, so we, keep, we keep talking about this, and it's got to be demoralizing if you're an actual Frenchman, but it's basically the legion that is... Ho- the, the, the foreigners, the French Foreign Legion that's holding up, that's holding this position. I would say without the Legion, the position would have fallen now, but the French paratroopers are elite. They're covering oh, yeah, themselves they're, with they're, glory. They're, they're, the they're, paratroopers, they're, they're and there's they're thousands of them there, and there's thousands well, of Legionnaires. I, I, don't want, I don't want any Frenchmen listening to this send us horrible emails about that. Well, I want to honor guys, these brave you got, men. You guys are dissing That's what French. I'm concerned about. No, I'm not going to diss any we're, Frenchmen. We're getting to the middle half of the 21st century in this battle in 1954, and, you know, the French is just a France is just a war weary nation. That's all we're trying to convey here. Is just it, it just seems like a demoralizing position, but it, but the bravery and the heroics and and the battle hardiness of these, of these legionnaires, these people that are fighting and serving their time to become a French citizen, are just stiffening the backbone of this position that is seemingly untenable. Without the legionnaires, it would have fallen sooner. Now, like I said, the paratroopers did their part. On April 16th, the main French garrison at Dien Bien Phu, excluding the isolated Isabel, had 2,600 combat-ready men. They were in charge of guarding a six-and-a-half-mile perimeter. They were also charged with guarding more than 3,000 prisoners. Five percent of the French army was committed to Dien Bien Phu. In contrast, Jap had over 35,000 combat-ready men under arms and a further 25,000 in reserve. This was well over half the forces available to the Viet Minh. There was a problem with Jap's 35,000 men, though. They were beginning to refuse orders because of their innumerable casualties. By April 5th, the Vietnamese had sustained well over 15,000 casualties. Accordingly, Jap changed tactics. I'll let Jap speak for himself. Quote, Our offensive on the eastern hills of the central sector has obtained important successes, but it has failed to reach all the assigned objectives. We have therefore decided to continue to execute the task foreseen for the second phase of our offensive. 
to advance our attack and encircle lines, to improve our positions and occupy new ones, progressively tightening further our strangleholds so as to completely intercept reinforcements and supplies, utilizing trenches which have been driven forward until they touch the enemy lines, the tactic of gnawing away at the enemy piecemeal, end quote. This is precisely what Jap did for the next two weeks. Yeah, I'm no math guy, but... Uh... 2,600 to, what are we calling that, uh, 60,000? 50,000. I'd say 55,000. 50,000. Yeah. No math guy, but uh, one seems bigger than the other. <laughs> yeah, one seems bigger than the other. Tens of thousands of coolies worked day and night in order to surround every French position with a spider web of approach trenches. Many of them carefully burrowed underground for long stretches until they emerged inside the French barbed wire lines, or even at the French bunker lines. And in some cases, mine galleries would be dug where Regiment 98 of the 316th People's Army Division held the line. The 98th had been recruited largely from among the Vietnamese of the Dong Tru area, which is one of the major coal mining areas of North Vietnam. Accordingly, many of these men from the 98th were former coal miners and were familiar with the digging of shafts and the preparation of explosive charges. Jap's new tactic of networking the entire valley with trenches was working. More and more airborne supplies fell into his lines. Often the Vietnamese would leave the supplies alone, and when the French forces left the relative security of their bases, the Viet Minh would surround and annihilate them. Hey, that one's got peanut butter in it. Get it. No, oh, no, they're shooting at us. Stop the peanut butter. Stay away from the cans. Somebody's shooting at the cans. I mean, I'm sure they learned after a while. They probably went at night, but anyways. On April 7th, DMB and Fu ran out of food rations. And the men were allotted survival rations once a day. So they're eating a small amount of food once a day. On April 29th, this meager amount of food was halved. So they're eating half of a survival ration once a day. French forces fought on empty stomachs. So it's like, hey, we got a full bottle of wine for you. Here's your crackers. <laughs> they probably ran out of the wine, I would think, but who knows? Well, you never know. It's probably a good diet, though. What do you think? <laughs> now That's what my wife lives on. <laughs> wine and crackers. If they had cheesed up, ah, it's over. It's over. <laughs> she could fight forever. She could fight forever. <laughs> Most wives can fight forever. We're, we're testament to that. Now, airborne supplies were delivered ineptly. For instance, jerry cans were filled to their brim, and because of the pressure of landing, they would burst when they landed, and so all the gasoline in the jerry can would spill out. Because of this, which never got corrected, of course, the tanks were running out of gasoline, which were absolutely vital for counterattacks. More and more resupplies drifted in the vent men lies. Pure water supplies dwindled. In the heat, French soldiers needed at least half a gallon of liquid a day. They got nowhere near the requisite amount. Scurvy and beriberi were epidemic throughout the garrison. Ammunition dwindled. Reinforcements dwindled. Everything dwindled except Jap's trench network. It expanded. So, so the French are getting scurvy? That's what like 16th century pirates got. And the French at DMB and Food. It, it, it's and scurvy. Your girlfriend in high school. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hey, she didn't have scurvy. She just had, you know, Barry, bad, Barry. bad dental work. Okay, bad dental work. All right, well. 
Well, I want to give you an idea of what this looks like. All right, guys. So here is an eyewitness quote from Major Bigot describing the effects of the effects of Jap's strangulation tactics through his trench networks. Here we go. Quote. I saw my men disappear one after the other. This battalion of 800 men with whom I had jumped had become a force of 700 men and then 600 and then 400, 300 and then I had perhaps 180 troops left with 80 survivors at the end, end quote. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, they, they had scurvy. They probably all went over to the other side. <laughs> they didn't. But, but, Japs, strangulation tactics were working. On April 23rd, Japs forces took two hills on Huget that dominated the airstrip, which served as the landing zone for the French parachute supplies. The Viet Minh now controlled over 90% of the airstrip, where the absolutely vital supplies came in. It was the beginning of the end for the French. And by the 24th of April, Jap had replaced almost all of his losses with green troops. Now he was ready for the final assault. Now let's look at the map for the final assault. As of April 25th, the French had lost the three strongholds on the fingers we talked about earlier. They had also lost over half of the strongholds Dominique and Elaine. Furthermore, almost the entire stronghold of Huget was now taken. In the south, there is the isolated stronghold of Isabel, which cannot provide reinforcements to the main forces in the Palm. From the start of the battle, when the French had eight strongholds, they now have approximately three. The final assault would come soon. So, um, is is Henri still in Saigon at this point? He's, yeah, no, he's, he's still nowhere there near the front. Nowhere near. Nowhere checking they, he on He had it. another attack he was more concerned with at this time. So, so... So his entire position is being overrun. Well, he, he did eventually have concern for this. but it, Oh, that's good. He basically wrote it off. And I would point out that the French officers in Saigon and the Northern Theater who aren't there did not provide the reinforcements they should have, and they knew it. They did provide a trickle, approximately 75 infantrymen a day, on average. But it it was nowhere near what they needed to provide, and I think they knew that. So what you're saying? I mean, this while this this is this will become this is the pivotal battle of this war for the French. Yeah. At the time, Henri and some of the other commanders might don't really maybe maybe don't have an idea don't know that this is the pivotal battle. They're going to lose this, and it's how done. can you know? I mean, how can you know? History, you see, we're looking back. Yeah, with but when you're there, you don't know. You don't know. So, you don't know. But all you know is you're getting overrun and all your guys getting wiped out in what you thought would be your decisive you, battle. I tell you, who would know if General Jap was leading the French forces, his ass would have known. And he'd have been there on the <laughs> would ground. Have probably, would have probably figured out a way to retreat, escape through some line, and then re-dig in somewhere else. They got cut off before they could retreat, but Jap wouldn't have been cut off before he could retreat. No. So there's your, there's your answer. Yeah. All right, so here we are. We're on May. We're in the month of May, May 1st. Now, May 1st was the beginning of the end. Following the usual pattern, Jap again lays down a huge artillery strike on the remaining French positions. To avoid the artillery barrage, French forces retreated to the back of their strongholds. So you're getting nailed in the front. What do you do? You go to the back of the class, right? (laughs) 
the Vinton men simply filled the gap in the line the French had vacated. So, as immediately when the artillery stops, their their trench network is so close, they go into the lines the French abandoned. Just like all the smart Asian kids that sit at the front of the bus. Yeah, I guess. So, anyway, that's that's Chris talking. Anyways, the Vinton men simply filled the gap, and almost all of Stronghold Dominique fell in this way, because they simply filled the gap the French retreated from. To the west... On Strong Point, Hugette, Jap launched a vicious assault. On one isolated hill, 29 Frenchmen resisted an entire division of Vietnamese soldiers. French positions were literally swarming with Viet men. The French were submerged. At one hill, 88 men resisted the advance of over 3,000 Vietnamese the Viet Minh's dead literally covered every inch of ground around the position, but still more came. The 88 French soldiers fought to the last man. I mean, once again, we get back to the point, the French are losing this battle. But, I mean, heroes are being made constantly. That's right. They're, they're, they're I mean, human waves attacks of just, over, in, of just overwhelming odds. firepower, impossible odds. And their commanders, I mean, that's who we're... If we're dogging on somebody, we're dogging on their commanders. Amen. Because they're just, they're not helping these guys. These brave men are dying for a losing cause. And some of them are probably more than happy to do it or look back on it and say, you know, that's what we did. That's how we rolled. Listen, but, the commanders, especially the ones in Saigon and outside of the valley, knew the game was over. And even really inside the valley, they knew the game was over. May 1st was checkmate. Yeah. But they had to play till the end. And once again, we get back to 3,000 people advanced on 88 guys, and they held out to the last man. The Vietnamese lost a ton of people in this battle. I agree, more than the estimates. More than they yeah. can, more than any of the low, low estimates if what we're reading. I agree. Yeah. All right, well, I can't, you know, I wasn't there, but I want to tell you what one historian recounts. Bernard Fall writes, quote, Long before midnight of May 2nd, the senior commanders in Dien Bien Phu knew the final assault had come, and that, short of a miracle, they would not be able to resist it. The message sent at 2000 hours simply reeled off the obituary of strong points fallen or attacked and of units destroyed, and added the comment, no more reserves left. Fatigue and wear and tear on the units were terrible. Supplies and ammunition was insufficient. It is quite difficult to resist one more such push by the communists, at least without bringing in one brand new battalion of excellent quality, end quote. There would be no reinforcements for Dien Bien Phu. The defenders were on their own, and there were few of them. I mean, you know, the quote just says it all. These people are surrounded. They're... I mean, they're demoralized. They're fighting to the last man. They're on low rations, except for maybe wine. <laughs> I mean, these people, I mean, you know, just the heroics of the remaining soldiers to continue to hold out. By May 2nd, individual positions were being massacred one Frenchman at a time in hand-to-hand combat. By the night of May 2nd, every position on Strong Point Dominique had fallen. Now the entire area of Dien Bien Phu was under direct enemy observation. By May 5th, most of Hugette and Elaine had fallen. These were all in the palm. Only Claudine in the palm was left relatively unscathed. Positions were falling one after another. It was like a line of dominoes. One position falling leads to another. 
Now the wounded French begin to request to fight. French Major Bigot remembers, quote, So some got up, one who had lost an eye, one who had lost an arm, one arm we called them, and said, We are going back. And they were still asking for a weapon to continue the combat. It was remarkable. There was a great spirit there. On May 6th, we went to see Lang Lei, and everybody was exhausted, completely exhausted. We knew we could take no more. There was no more ammunition, and the men could not take it. So when the Viet Minh attack on May 7th came, it really was the end. We gathered the few chiefs of battalions still on their feet and said we would try the breakthrough. They said, now it is not worth it. We might as well die. We could not go 100 meters without passing out. End quote. So there we go. I mean, there you have the wounded who are just like, hey, I'm wounded, but I ain't going out laying in this bed. I call that bravery. Like, I mean, hey, Lang Lei, old one arm over here, which you guys are calling me one arm. I'm not. I'm not dogging on your creativity, but or that we're under a lot of pressure and you don't have any time to become creative. But my name's Larry. Call me Larry. <laughs> call me Larry. Help, help me out. On May 6th, the penultimate day of the battle, a major French strong point that was eviscerated when the Vietnamese set off 3,000 pounds of TNT in a mine shaft below the stronghold. Bernard Fall describes the event, quote, At 2,300 sharp, the fortified position simply exploded. A huge geyser of black earth and smoke rose in the sky. Then came the Viet Minh assault waves. Rain-soaked earth of the crater was as slippery as oil, in progress agonizingly slow. Sergeant Chabray and his handful of men, he, he had five with him, including three wounded, fired clip after clip after clip into the masses of bogged-down humanity below them. After hours of holding the Viet Minh off, the commander of the exploded stronghold asked permission to retreat. The cold answer from his commander rang back, You're a paratrooper. You are there to get yourself killed. All of the French defenders died or were taken prisoner. End quote. Back to the front. You will do. Damn. That's all I, I can say. say. What I say. You're a paratrooper. You are there to die. That was actually my wife's wedding line for me. That was her wedding vow. Oh, that, that, <laughs> that sounds so not. cool until you remember these guys. You remember like they're people and they don't want to get wiped out. They're like, eh. No, he did it. I mean, he stayed. Well, was, obviously he stayed. What a man. But Yeah, what a man. But still, if you, you got your brothers, you're like, hey, can we get out? <laughs> I got I got sh- I put my shorts up there, white shorts, waving the flag. I'm like, hey, let's talk to these guys. Uh, I, I mean, if you're fighting for what you believe in, you don't give up. Now, the remaining French officers gathered in the command post to wait for the Vietnamese. Lang Lei remembers what happened next. Quote, We heard something rolling over the roof. I was seated in my chair, not thinking of anything in particular. The stairs leading to the outside were in front of me, and we could see a patch of sky there. We all thought, A grenade! God! A grenade! Would be thrown down the stairs and explode, but that wasn't the case. We saw a victorious Vit soldier in a cork helmet, carrying a bayonet on his gun, who simply said, Get out! End quote. The French had lost the battle for Dien Bien Phu, and with it, they had lost French Indochina. The empty French command post still remains, as it was at that moment on the plains of Dien Bien Phu. Twisted pieces of artillery still lie all around it. Only a small bronze plaque has been added. 
It records simply the moment of the end. 1730 hours, May 7th, 1954. The last radio dispatch from the French at Dien Bien Phu was, The enemy has overrun us. We are blowing up everything. Vive la France! End quote. The Vietnamese took 11,700 men prisoner. Of these, 4,500 were wounded. Over half would die on the 500-mile march through the jungle to prison. Now, General Jap explains why the Vietnamese won the war. And I think this is really a, an excellent quote, especially for our West, us Westerners to hear. Listen, quote, Journalists and scholars ask me the same question. How did we win? We won the war because we would rather die than live in slavery. Our history proves this. Our deepest aspiration has always been self-determination. That spirit provided us with stamina, courage, and creativity in the face of a powerful enemy. End quote. All right, Chris, uh, go ahead and tell us about the repercussions of the French loss at Dien Bien Phu. The French loss at Dien Bien Phu ended French colonialism in, so- in Southeast Asia. Yeah. All right? Yeah. That's because the day after, <laughs> the, the final day of Dien Bien Phu, the next day, the Vietnamese and the French meet in Paris for talks on... Vietnamese independence. Literally the next day. Literally the next day. God. And what happens out of these talks is the is the country becomes partitioned into. That's the right. northern half is run by Ho Chi Minh and the communists. The southern half is run by a U.S. backed leader who eventually becomes a shithead. That's because true. you know this is this is the latter half of the 21st century or the 20th century. Yeah. And basically all the U.S. backed leaders in in proxy war nations for the Cold War are <laughs> shitheads. Well, it's not like the communist leaders that are proxies are great guys either. I mean, oh yeah, no. But look at East Germany at this time. You know what I mean? He like hated his own people. Yeah, but for some reason they went all the communists win a lot of these proxy war battles because the people we we put in charge are like brutal dictators. Oh, I, they are no in, in Vietnam. That's true. But Chris is trying to get us into another podcast. We've already gone over an hour. All right. We're going to have to Let's cut this Let's keep off. going. No. Yes. More. We want more. All right. We're going to go. I'll give you the outro, and we can do it. more podcasts. No. This is the end. We're going to go to the outro now. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed the first ever episode of Battlecast, recorded live in the North Georgia bunker. For additional content, please visit our website, battlecast.net, and follow us on Twitter, at BattleCastNet. Also, if you're if you can, leave us a five star review on iTunes. So this is Chris signing off. All right, and to end the show, we have the French Foreign Legion Choir singing "March of the Legion." And just so you know, when you hear the laughter in this song, that's the devil laughing. Now this is Luke for BattleCast. Vive la France!
Oh, my God. 